you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good morning and peace be with you. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cole and I'm one of the pastors here and it is really good to be with you this morning. And I'm just going to give a spoiler alert. We don't have time to address how funny it is that Jonah ends with the words, and also much cattle this morning. But just enjoy that, because it is fun. Um, But but Jonah chapter 4 ends without resolution. Um, And the the book of Jonah ends without resolution. We have our main character, the melodramatic prophet, the self-centered and rebellious prophet, and he's given a choice. He can repent and humble himself before God and take pleasure in God's will and the things that that God has decreed to come to pass, or he can sit in his anger and be scorched by the sun's heat. The book intentionally leaves us as the readers to wonder and in the process to be introspective. We are supposed to see ourselves in Jonah and to allow the text to be a mirror by which we evaluate our posture before God and others. And so in Jonah 4, Jonah is met with the problem that he's really had all along. He knows who God is, what God is like, and the sorts of things that God does, and he doesn't find any comfort in the things that he knows. So what will you do in your life when you realize that the God of the Bible doesn't suit your preferences? or agree with your prejudices. Furthermore, Jonah can't see anywhere beyond himself, right? He has this perspective that is totally self-absorbed. And because of this, he wallows in self-pity and anger and despair, and he has the attitude of a victim, even though it's his sin and his deranged perspective that are the root of all of his emotional problems. And so we're left to ask ourselves, when things don't go our way, are we going to be able to see beyond ourselves? Or will we always be the victims of our own story? And the last thing that we see is that Jonah is overwhelmed with bitterness toward his enemies. He can't stomach God's love for them. And so the question is, are we afraid of God treating any person or any group of people with mercy? Would you be okay with it if God showed grace toward your enemies? And so as we look at Jonah for this final week, let's also look at ourselves. And because that's really why God has given us this word. It's not to record the history of Nineveh, though that's important. It's so that God's people might learn from God's word. And so let's pray and ask that God would teach us. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. That it is beautiful and clear and diverse in genre and and that in it you you have some somehow contained a mirror for us, that we might look at ourselves and see our deficiencies, 
That, that your word might reveal to us our flaws and, and our weaknesses. And in the midst of that, the grandeur of your grace and your mercy and your redemption. And so I pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, that all of those things would be on display. And that the Lord Jesus in all of his glory and majesty and grace and holiness would come to bear on our lives in such a way that we leave as a people changed. More humble before you more loving toward our enemies, more faithful in the midst of adversity. Would you do these things according to your grace? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So so remember that last week, Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh after running from God, and and God sends a a submarine of sorts to, to bring him to Nineveh, and he ends up in Nineveh, and he proclaims, yet 40 days... And Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the Hebrew there translates more literally to, it shall be turned over. And in a sense, Jonah's prophecy came true, just not in the way that he expected or hoped it would. Because Nineveh, led by their king, repented of their wickedness. And God saw what they did, and he relented from the disaster that he was going to bring upon them. He turned from his anger and and was merciful toward them. And so the city of Nineveh was morally turned over. And and Jonah expected that they were going to be turned over in, in judgment, that they were going to be toppled. These Ninevites, the enemies of God and God's people, are people that Jonah despised. And they were spared by God. And Jonah's not happy about that. He wanted them to be crushed for their evil. This would be good for Jonah and for Israel, Jonah thought. I mean, they were the enemies of God. Their destruction would be good for God's people. It would be protection for God's people. They deserved it. And Jonah knew that, that they deserved it. And yet, God didn't destroy them. He relented because of their repentance. And this doesn't please Jonah. Here the first verse of chapter 4, and, and I've altered it a bit according to what I think is a better translation. It says, but it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. Jonah found God's mercy not only undesirable, as the ESV translates, or displeasing. That's, that's the word in your Bible. He thought it was downright bad. He thought God was wrong, that there was moral failure on God's part for showing mercy to Nineveh. The Hebrew word there is the word ra, which is a verb form of the word bad or wicked or evil. Jonah didn't think God had acted righteously, and he was mad about it. Jonah thinks his definition of righteousness is better than God's. So let's keep reading. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Notice Israel is his country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So remember, the king of Nineveh was told of God's coming judgment, and he called for repentance. And last week, Reed keyed in on on this phrase from the king. He said, who knows? Right? Who knows? Maybe God will turn from his anger. Maybe we will be spared. Who knows? 
this humility of the sinful king of Nineveh is, is borne out in, in this lack of knowledge, this mystery as it relates to God's will. But Jonah knows, right? That's the whole point of what Jonah's saying. He says, I knew you were like this, God. That's why I didn't want to come on this mission. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you relented from disaster when, when people were repentant. I knew, this is exactly the kind of thing you always do, God. And that's why I didn't want to come because I didn't want to be party to it. I didn't want you to be who you are. I mean, Jonah comes across here like an arrogant child, like the youngest of like a passel of teenagers. And he's bemoaning that his father is exactly who he has always known his father to be. And the worst part about his father is that he's different than him. Jonah is essentially quoting here from Exodus chapter 34. Um, and in Exodus, in chapter 32... God gives the law to Moses, the Ten Commandments to Moses, writes them on tablets on Mount Sinai, and Moses comes down from the mountain, and what does he find? He finds the people of Israel had already turned away from Yahweh. They fashioned a golden calf. They're giving this golden calf all of the glory that Yahweh was due for saving them from Israel, and so Moses smashes the tablets, and God tells Moses, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to destroy them. I know I just saved them. I know I just parted a sea for them. But these are an idol-worshiping and stiff-necked people, and I'll have nothing to do with them. And Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. He, he tells them, God, these are the people that you've chosen. Please relent. And God relents. And God calls Moses back up to the mountain to receive new tablets. And then God comes to Moses and tells Moses who he is. In the most significant way up to this point in the Bible, we've had God reveal himself. And this is what it says. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When God tells this to Moses, when he reveals the depths of his graceful, merciful, and just character, Moses responds by bowing before God, worshiping, and begging God to be in the midst of his people, this stiff-necked people. Like, please come with us. Be uh, among us. Be our God. And now back to Jonah. He's upset because God is treating these Gentile sinners in Nineveh like he treats his people Israel. Right, Because Jonah sees the parallel between Nineveh's idol worship and wickedness and God relenting at the face of their repentance and what happened to the people of Israel when they were worshiping the golden calf. And Jonah doesn't care for God giving these Gentiles the same treatment that he gives his people. He's not a fan of that. They are his enemies. And so Jonah becomes the stiff-necked one. The, the one who is insolent and belligerent in the face of God, totally consumed by his emotions that are rooted in a lousy perspective. See, Jonah had good theology. He knew God and knew what God was like, but he didn't love what he knew about God. 
So, so good theology doesn't equate to righteousness. Jonah knew God was gracious and slow to anger, and Jonah wanted a God who hated the Ninevites as much as he did. He wanted a God who was as angry as he was. He wanted a God who was a lot more like him. And so when the differences between Jonah's sinful and immature character come into conflict with the utter grandeur of God's love and majesty and mercy, it leaves him to the conclusion of wanting to die. And and at first, this seems extremely melodramatic. But really, when you think about it, there's a logic to it. If the supreme being of the universe is in your eyes not good, you would want to escape from this world too. If this God who can do whatever he wants, who rules the cosmos, who rules the world, who causes your enemies to become his friends, if he can do whatever he wants and you don't like him, you would want to leave his world too. And Jonah's already tried this. He ran to the sea and had sailors throw him into the sea. And God came to him in the sea. And now he is begging God, just let me die. I've been trying. Would you just let me? And God responds with a simple question. He says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah's feelings are running the show for him at the moment. He had a problem in his heart. In, in Jonah's heart is arrogance and hatred and an unreconciled tension between his definition of good and God's definition of good. And the problem in his heart has made him angry when something unearthed those problems. Namely, God having mercy on Nineveh. This revealed to Jonah the problem in his heart, which resulted in him being angry. And so now his anger is causing him to sin. He's irreverent toward God. He's despising his own life. He's generally marked by a hard heart here. Now hear this. Feelings don't always cause us to sin. The moral of this story isn't that feelings are bad and you should always just push them down because they're an inconvenience. But strong feelings are always worth investigating. Sometimes you have a strong feeling and if you stop and ask, do I do well to be angry or excited or sad? Your answer might be yes. Yes, these feelings are in line with a a righteous perspective and a pure heart. My feelings are a result of a godly disposition. But sometimes our feelings betray that something in our heart needs to be addressed. Like the sinful anger of Jonah, like his unforgiveness, or in our lives maybe lust, or covetousness, or pride. Sometimes our feelings are related to something that happened in the past. That we are projecting into the present. Sometimes our emotion are a result of bad knowledge. That's not the problem for Jonah here, but sometimes we have strong feelings because we have bad knowledge about something. But maybe we don't know the right things about God, the right things about a certain situation, the right things about ourselves, but strong feelings should always cause us to slow down And wonder, do I do well to feel this way? See, God was not criticizing Jonah for his anger. He was graciously inviting Jonah to self-examination. 
He was inviting him to slow down, to take a deep breath, and to consider repentance and restoration. And Jonah didn't take the invitation. One thing of note in this is this this question of do you do well to be angry is a callback to God's conversation with Cain in Genesis chapter 4. And for those of you who aren't familiar, in Genesis 4, the two sons of Adam... Cain and Abel bring offerings to God. And God appreciates Abel's offering because it is sacrificial and loving and coming from a heart of worship. Cain's offering is not appreciated by God. And so Cain's response isn't repentance or finding a more satisfactory offering. Instead, it's jealousy and anger toward his brother. And while this anger is harboring in his heart, God comes to him and asks him essentially Cain, do you do well to be angry? And in fact, he says, you need to do well over your anger because it's going to get the better of you if you don't. And Cain did not heed God's advice. And he rose up and killed his brother and was sent into exile. So God here is treating Jonah like Cain, inviting him to consider that his feelings might lead to a bad outcome. Let's keep reading. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what became of the city. So Jonah goes east. If you're a character in the Bible, you don't want to go east. Adam and Eve were sent east of Eden. Cain was sent east of the land of Nod, like over and over and over again in the Bible, east is where exile happens. East is away from God's presence. East is away from God's blessing. And at this point, Jonah knows that, and he chooses to go east of the city. And he builds a booth east of the city. He's on his own little wilderness journey. See, in the story that we mentioned from Exodus, after God chooses to relent over his anger toward Israel, the people of Israel go on a wilderness journey, and for 40 years, they dwell in booths or tabernacles. And they, they have one for each family, and then there's one more tabernacle, one more booth, and that's for God to dwell in their midst. As Moses requested that he would dwell in their midst. Notice Jonah just builds one booth here. He wants nothing to do with God east of the city. He doesn't build a place for God to come and dwell with him. And yet, just like when he cast himself into the sea, once again, Jonah finds himself in the company of God. He's hoping that God won't show up. It's much easier to be grumpy and wrong and arrogant by yourself than in the company of others, especially if the company of others includes the all-knowing, all-merciful, all-righteous God of the universe with whom you have a serious bone to pick, right? Like, Jonah wants nothing to do with God here, and this is what happens. Last time Jonah ran away from God to die, God appointed a great fish to save him, and now it says the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Exceedingly glad because of the plant. So when Jonah was saved in the fish belly, he was glad and grateful to God, even though he had wanted to die and to be done with God. 
right? Intellectually, Jonah was done with God, but turns out dying is a lot less dignified and a lot less tolerable than Jonah actually wanted to endure. Loneliness is similar for Jonah. Again, Jonah goes to the east to wait and maybe to die, but sitting around and waiting to die isn't as easy as he thought it would be. The thing about Jonah is that he wants to hate God. He wants to not need God. He wants to wallow in self-pity and arrogance all at the same time. But when God shows up for him instead of for his enemies, Jonah actually likes it. It makes him exceedingly glad. And if we allow this text to be a mirror, I think many of us will find ourselves in this. God calls us to hard things, and we don't care for him. God's word proclaims a worldview that seems outdated and potentially devoid of the fun we might want to enjoy, and so we flee from him. He seems to allow people who, don't, uh, who we don't approve of to belong in his family, including some people that we're very certain deserve to be left on the outside. And so we judge him and are frustrated with him. But when the sun is beating down and we're alone and miserable and desperate for comfort and God comes to our aid, well, then we can start to see the benefits of having God around. Until, of course... God tries to teach us something. The passage continues. It says, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die again and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah goes to the east of the city. He's sitting in the scorching sun. God raises up a plant, and now God appoints a worm to destroy the plant and an east wind to come and attack Jonah, right? So Jonah is, in effect, absorbing the east wind on behalf of Nineveh, right? And he's experiencing all of the misery on behalf of Nineveh. God saves Jonah from the scorching heat one day, And Jonah is glad. And then the very next day, he takes the plant away. And Jonah wants to die again. Is God being cruel to Jonah here? I think that's like one reasonable question to ask. Is God just being cruel to Jonah? And the answer is no. God is using the plant and the worm and the sun and the east wind just like he used the fish to teach Jonah something about him and his relationship with him. And and God does the same things for us. The events of our lives, especially in those moments when we're running away from God, are often the appointments of God to teach us about his character, his love, his commitment toward us, and our need for him. See, Jonah wanted Nineveh to experience the fire of God's wrath, but they received mercy. And so Jonah sinned very wickedly becoming like Nineveh yet again. And God sent a plant to cover him mercifully. And then Jonah got what he wanted. Then Jonah got what he had wanted for Nineveh, unrelenting heat, exhaustion, and pain from the God of heaven. 
Jonah deserved every sunburned blister, every sand-filled eye that he experienced as the east wind was coming and, and attacking him. The sun was scorching down on him. Jonah deserved every bit of it, the fullness of God's destructive wrath. And, and Jonah's getting exactly what he thinks he deserves, except he thinks that Nineveh deserves it. He doesn't yet realize that he is like Nineveh, deserving of the same things. And still... There is mercy in that God has not blotted him from the face of the earth. A a sunburn and some red eyes are nothing in comparison to the fullness of God's wrath. And, And so God comes again and says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. You gotta respect Jonah's ability to double down. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So graciously, God is inviting Jonah to reconsider his attitude for the last time, to reconsider his perspective and his sin. And again, Jonah doubles down. Sin is often hard to let go of, especially when we're emotionally invested in it. This conversation between God and Jonah is at the end of the book, and it's really the moral mirror of the book. These last words are, are the whole point of what God is teaching us in Jonah. The plant serves as a metaphor for Jonah and his own life. It is short, rather insignificant, and yet fully within the will and mercy of God. Jonah knows the scriptures, especially the Psalms that meditate on the short length of our lives, the smallness that we have in the face of God and and his creation. And God has raised up this plant for the purpose of cutting it down in due time. God raises up the plant for a purpose and then cuts it down in due time. Similarly, he has raised Jonah up for a purpose, to proclaim repentance to Nineveh. And in due time, he will cut Jonah down as well. But Jonah is being invited to step outside of his self-absorption and consider the grand and wonderful purposes of God. God has turned the Ninevites, at least for a moment, from enemies of him and his people into his friends. And this, too, is a metaphor that we see in the plant. Because now Nineveh and the kingdom of Assyria, this great and powerful enemy of Israel, which has the the physical power to destroy Israel, has turned and now they can provide shade for Israel, protection for Israel. They're on the same side of Israel. God has raised them up for a purpose. And in due time, the scriptures will show, God will cut them down. Eventually, when Nineveh turns back to their wicked ways, God will cut them down too. The passage was given to Israel, I'm convinced, in order to prepare them for the coming of the new covenant that was to come in Jesus. As the Gentiles were to be grafted in to the fullness of God's people, because Nineveh has received, like we mentioned earlier, the grace of God that only Israel had been shown in this national sense before. 
I mean, there's a clear parallel between Exodus 34 and, and, and this passage in Nineveh. And God is preparing the people of Israel for the day in which Gentile nations are made to be part of Israel through a new covenant in which more than just ethnic Jews belong to the household of God. But this passage isn't just for Israel. It's for the church today. There are groups of people and individual relationships that all of us likely have a sense of hatred toward. And as, as good 21st century Christians, we would never use the word hatred to describe it. But if we searched our hearts, that's what we would find. We want certain people and certain groups of people to get what they deserve. For some of you, it is phony and abusive Christian leaders that you have no tolerance for. And you want them to get every bit of what they deserve. For others, it is other religious groups, even some that would call themselves Christians who who lead people astray, and you want them to get what they deserve. For some, it's political coalitions that you despise, who you think are are workers of wickedness in our world, and, and you have no desire to see them receive mercy. You just want them to get what they deserve. Enemies of God's kingdom should not be recipients of mercy. For some of us, it is individual people that we've had in our lives that that we cannot fathom receiving mercy for the things that they have done to us or to loved ones. For the Pharisees in the first century, it was tax collectors and adulterers and Romans and Samaritans. And then Jesus Christ befriended and died for all of them. There is no joy to be found in arrogant hatred. There is only loneliness under unpredictable plans. The the world isn't about you. This is a fundamental thesis statement of the book of Jonah, that the world isn't about you, it is about God and his purposes. He will have mercy upon whom he has mercy. And even when your attitude is more like Jonah's than it is like Jesus's, he will have mercy on you as well. The the grand mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he hates sin, but is willing to draw near to sinners so that they might humble themselves before him and receive life and mercy and grace everlasting. So whether you have identified with Jonah in any of his ways or the Ninevites in any any of his ways, maybe you come in this morning and, and really you're a pagan enemy of Jesus Christ like the Ninevites. You have a hatred for God and his people, but you found himself yourself here this morning. Or maybe you've been an arrogant member of God's own household, like Jonah. Or you've been like Jonah in that you allow your emotions to go unchecked and lead you into sin and despair and hurting others. Or, or like Jonah, you know all about God and all about what he is like and have a hard time liking the things that you know about him. Maybe like Jonah, you just feel like you're all alone in the scorching heat. And if any of these things are true about you, the book of Jonah has good news for you. God loves you. If any of those things that would be so self-condemning, so overwhelming are true about you, the book of Jonah is resoundingly clear. God loves you and he will have mercy on you. 
The Lord, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He has revealed that love through his son, Jesus Christ, finally and fully. Jesus Christ, like Jonah, went east of the city, east of the city of Jerusalem, to bear the fullness of God's hot anger toward his people on the cross. See, Jonah unwittingly and unknowingly bore the east wind on behalf of Nineveh. But Jesus knew exactly what that wind was going to be, and still he went east to the cross, all alone, no other tabernacle, away from the presence of God to absorb all that we deserve. Whether we're more like the Ninevites or more like Jonah, Christ has died for us that we might have life with God forever. to die on behalf of all who would come to him. Rebels and rogues, warriors and cowards, prudes and prostitutes are all welcome in this great city, the city of the people of God, God's church. See, God pities you and he pities much more the great city of his church and his bride of which he's invited you to become a citizen. Though worthy of death, this city has been given life. The thesis of Jonah is that nobody deserves God's mercy, and yet somehow God keeps dispensing mercy. So repent, believe, and be transformed by the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. The better prophet than Jonah, a better sacrifice than Jonah, and better hope than even the people of Nineveh had. Let's pray.